bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be able to gather together like this as your children, as your adopted ones, and know that we're in the love of Christ, to know that we're in your hands, and nothing can separate us from your love. Help us, Father, to enjoy this and revel in this. and Just have the peace and joy that you want us to have, just as Jesus had, knowing his relationship with you. Father, most of all, we're thankful for your son, that you sent him in such a sacrificial way to be judged on our behalf so that whoever turns to him in humility will be saved. We ask, Father, that you bless this message and that you guide us by your Spirit. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Part 3. Thankfully, the answer is no one. Let me begin this way this evening. I heard a story recently of a little boy. He was about four years old. And he was asked about a church service afterwards. His dad asked him what he learned. And he said he heard about freedom. But then he said he didn't know what it meant. And then after a few seconds of silence, he said to his dad, but I know what love means. And his dad said, oh yeah? What does love mean? The young boy simply said, love means love. Isn't that beautiful? That might be the most technical, deep definition truly, that we should embrace with the faith of a child. Because these things, like we talk about something as lofty as the love of God, these things are hard to describe or encapsulate or define, as we often try to do. But the thing about God's love is you know it when you see it. And so the little boy did. And, of course, we're not talking about worldly versions of love, um, skewed, perverted versions, you know, including things like infatuation and lust. We're talking about knowing and recognizing true love from God, the evidence being that others are willing to sacrifice something for your well-being, for your benefit, the evidence being unselfish and caring. So, for example, how do we know God loves us? It's very simple, by seeing his actions for us at the cross. As simple as that little boy's explanation. Love means love. You know, we can look at the cross, that's it. That's love. I can't describe it, but I see it. I know it when I see it. So we have the greatest example ever given in Jesus Christ. Turn again to Romans 8, verse 35 which is our main passage. (coughs) Romans 8.35 What does love mean? Take it from the four-year-old. Love means love. 
And in Romans 8.35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. On the board, we've seen the Greek for this phrase, we overwhelmingly conquer, from Hooper Nikao. And it means to be more than a conqueror as a result of supernatural forces. We, we can't be more than a conqueror on our own. We can try all we want. Um, our own energy, our own wisdom, our own uh, striving, it never, ever comes even close but through the love of Christ, we overwhelmingly conquer horrible things like on the board. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. You can be facing death, and yet you overwhelmingly conquer by the supernatural power of the love of Christ. It's a supernatural act and nothing less. It's something that takes place in our soul that gives us supernatural peace in these faces of these horrible, horrible challenges. Without God, they're clearly horrible. But with Him, they're almost like just a detail. When you have the love of Christ, when you know the love of Christ. So may we never forget this principle. We overwhelmingly conquer through Christ who loved us. Remember, God loved us first. We love because God loved us first. We overwhelmingly conquered through Christ who loved us. And for those of us who have placed our trust in Christ, God is now always with us, and He's always ready and willing to act supernaturally on our behalf, even within our spirit. Just think about that. Just think about the confidence you should have in that. God is always once we've turned to Christ in humility, He's always ready and willing to act supernaturally on our behalf, regardless of the situation we get in or the persecution we face. Even within our spirit, He's ready and willing to act. So we never give up hope is the point. We never give up hope, regardless of any situation. You know, whatever, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Amen? We never give up hope. That's not in our language. That's not in the way a believer thinks once you're saved, once you know the love of Christ. We never give up hope. It'd be silly to when you have the all-powerful one in your corner whose love is perfect. On the board, I believe this came up on Sunday, because nothing... And no one is able to conquer God. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Is somebody going to be strong enough or wise enough to convince God to not love us anymore, for example? I'm talking foolishly. I was thinking Satan, he's like the next most powerful creature, right? I mean, he's the highest angel, all this wisdom, all this power compared to us. Yet Satan's power is like a flashlight. God's is like the sun. Who's going to convince God to turn down the light? 
to, uh, to not love us the way he, he is love. When God loves, that's the way he loves. So again, on the board, because nothing and no one is able to conquer God, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Our union with him is fully dependent upon the all-powerful one of the universe, and he has already made his decision regarding his adopted ones. Just think about that. He's already made his decision about how he's going to treat those who turn to Christ. And so we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, period. That's a statement of fact. It doesn't, it's not an opinion. It's not dependent on, upon feeling. It is a statement of fact for the believer. That's the perspective of a new life in Christ that God wants us to hold on to every single day. And then Paul goes on in a super encouraging way, doing his best to list every possibility, or should we say impossibility, in Romans 8.38. Look at Romans 8.38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And how did Paul become so convinced, to use his word, in verse 38? It's when we remain and stand firm in the word of God that we learn how to abide in his love, as Paul did. Paul was in the word always and often. And so his love and his conviction, he was convinced about the love that Christ had for him in his own soul. And he walked around with that confidence, regardless of all the horrible things he did face. So on the board, we're meant to abide in his love. The Word and the Spirit continually teach the humble how to stay in his love each and every day. So much emphasis has been on this in the last what, two weeks or so? The Word and the Spirit continually teach the humble how to stay in His love each and every day. And those who submit and embrace all the grace offered to them, they'll have the peace of Christ. They'll have this peace to be able to confidently say, I overwhelmingly conquer through Christ who loved me, regardless of circumstances. And that's power. That's supernatural power. God wants us to swim in it. He wants us to enjoy it, to be so confident in His love that nothing, nothing bothers us. Nothing can even get us down. Or at least nothing can make us despair, as we'll see later. So this point on the board is simple, but it's essential. It's vital. Or we can't we won't abide in His love. Those willing to stop looking for a quick fix to find peace, but instead turn to God wholeheartedly, only those people will find His peace and His love and be able to enjoy it as God designed for His children to enjoy it. On Sunday, the Spirit also asked us to examine our motivation. Why do we want certain things? Even the good things. 
Why are we asking God for certain things that even He would consider good? What's our motivation behind it? James has a popular verse regarding this in James 4.3 on the board. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. It could be something, quote-unquote, godly. It could be something good, but you have a bad motive. You have maybe a selfish motive. I don't know, but something to really think about. The Spirit's been telling us, examine your motivation. Why do you want this, quote-unquote, good thing? It seems everyone wants more faith so they can possess His peace and His love. But many are unwilling to do it God's way. Who doesn't want more faith? Right? If you're a believer, that's kind of the thing you're, 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 you're grasping for. You're like, at times anyway, you're desiring more. Father, give me more faith. Give me more hope. Give me more confidence in you. Everyone wants that, but you know what? Not everyone's willing to do it God's way. And God says, this, this is the way to do it to get it. It's humble yourself before me. And the word is me. For example, in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. No way around that one. Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. And not once a week, as Pastor talked about, filling up the gas tank. And they'd be like, oh, I read a whole book on Monday. I'm good till Sunday. That's not how it works. That's not how your soul works. Your soul needs daily nutrition. Or you will not have this faith that you want to have. It requires a daily submission. On the board, we saw this on Sunday. When given faith, we are given the conviction that supernaturally settles our souls. It's our conviction that unsettles those without it. Hence, arrogance is hatred of God-given confidence. But when given faith, we are given the conviction that supernaturally settles our souls. That's what we want. That's what God wants for us. But He's not going to allow us to do it our own way. We know that faith is described as conviction of things not seen. Turn again to Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is described as conviction of things not seen. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. I want conviction that the things that are not seen are real. That the things that are going on around me are supernatural. That I don't see the whole story or picture, but something's happening of eternal value. Even around me and through me and around our church and through our church. I want that conviction. Hebrews 11.1 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But many want this on their own terms. So they won't enjoy the rest and the conviction that God wants them to have. They won't possess the peace of Christ or rest in the love of Christ as God has designed us to do. On the board, 
This is just said another way, you know, what's been coming up the last few weeks. Only those who humbly ask for more faith and willingly hear the word of Christ will be granted such supernatural wonders in the soul over time. And over time is a key here. How many plants do you know that grow from a seed to a full plant or a full tree with fruit on it? Like in an hour. Doesn't happen, right? Time is required of it. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's required of us too. It's the way God designed life, as we're going to get to. So, again, on the board, only those who humbly ask for more faith and willingly hear the word of Christ will be granted such, sup- such supernatural wonders in the soul over time. And so we all want the peace of Christ. And when we catch glimpses of it in our lives, we want others to have it too, especially those in our family. As we watch people stumble and struggle to find peace, reaching out to the wrong things that we know are dead ends, we desire to share the truth with them in hopes that they surrender to the Lord and find true life, get a a glimpse of this peace and what it's like to stand in the love of Christ. I mean, who doesn't want that for the people around them? And the Spirit's been reminding us to do this thing in honesty and in love. Not in your own power or your own salesmanship. He's been reminding us all as evangelists. Do it in honesty and in love. God doesn't need our help. He needs our obedience to His way. He needs us to follow His way of sharing the gospel. And how is that? In grace and truth. In grace and truth, without compromise. And in this world, it's actually refreshing to people when someone tells them straight out, without an agenda, the truth. Without trying to talk them into something. Isn't it? I mean, we all have experienced that. We don't, we don't want to try to be talked into something. And there's something that happens when, when you step back and you leave it in God's hands and you refuse to try to talk someone into something like a salesman. There's something that happens on the board regarding sharing the good news. When you have the peace to let the chips fall where they may, and that's what it is, it's peace they will see it and be drawn to it because it's a product of the one true God. When you you share the good news with someone and you have the peace to, you do it in truth and in love, right? In grace and in truth, but you have the peace to let it go. You have the peace to not push. You have the peace to not talk somebody into it. People see that. And that's what they want even. What they're seeing is supernatural God at work in you. That's the peace of Christ. It's the product of the one true God. You can't get it anywhere else. You can't go buy it somewhere. Or be talked into it by a salesman. Or a motivational speaker. So, do it His way. And have the peace and let the chips fall where, where it may. And you watch how God draws people. People see you trusting God for the results. 
they don't realize that maybe, but they, that's what they see. They see you trusting God for the results. Whatever happens, happens. Because they see you are not trying to convince them and you're just resting in the truth. You know you have the truth. And when people see that, they're shaken up in a good or in a bad way. They're shaken up. They have something. I can see it because of their attitude, because of their peace. So we don't have to do as the world does, even peddling the word of God from wrong motivation. As the Spirit's been telling us on the board, never sell the gospel. We cannot sell someone the gospel, for that is nothing more than man supposing he can do something God apparently cannot do in their minds, which is frankly lunacy. Imagine man supposing that he can do something God can't do. You know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this my own way because I want to give a little extra help that God's not giving. God's not here right now. You know, what, what, what is that person thinking? So this came up on Sunday. Even though we might have good intentions as an evangelist, we might have good intentions. I mean, I can speak for myself over the years. I think I had good intentions, but I would try to talk people into the gospel too much. I would try to, you know, in a way, use my own way or my own strategy. And it was wrong. So we might have good intentions um, thinking that we, you know, can find a better way to do this thing, right? But there really isn't a better way. That's what came out on Sunday. So I put this on the board for you. This is, was mentioned Sunday. <laughs> Jesus Christ stated it very simply. I am the way and the truth and the life. A better way doesn't exist, especially since God only draws those he so desires. In John 6, a This should rightly humble us. As we share the good news, we're reminded it's not about us or our technique. It's about being willing to be honest and humble in sharing the truth in love. Without dancing around it, without trying to find or use techniques or strategies that you came up with. No, it's being honest and humble, sharing the truth and love, and letting the chips fall where they may. Possessing the peace of Christ, even while you're trying to save a soul, because you know it's not dependent upon you, it's dependent upon God, who draws, draws people in. And it's the truth that's able to set people free, isn't it? It's not you or I. So we continue to be humbled by the Spirit. Never sell the gospel. John 6, a Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Therefore, no amount of salesmanship will ever do what God isn't willing to do. There are no shortcuts to conversion. Conversion, conversion is quite a process, as we've been learning. It's not, even in the Bible, you know, it's not necessarily like an overnight thing. Who knows what God's been doing in someone's souls for, for years before coming in contact with your presentation of the gospel. Or maybe the first time they heard it. We don't know. But conversion is definitely a process, and there are no shortcuts to it. It's the work of God, and it's only the work of God. 
And this is a wonderful freeing thing to remember as we go out and, you know, obey the Great Commission. God has his process. God has his process. We're just to have a little piece, a little contribution, a privilege to contribute in a certain way. But the results don't belong to us. So God has his process, and not only with those who are being saved, but also with those who are saved and are being sanctified. This came up on Sunday on the board. There are no shortcuts. And this, this should be good news to us. Maybe we'll see that by the end of the lesson. But there are no shortcuts. Sanctification relies upon the mixture of the word, the spirit, and life itself in order to function. God has deemed that there is no substitute for experience, for even his son was required to live as a human. It's really pretty crazy when you think about it. The benefits of living out life are endless, and God knows them all. Just think about that. God knows the many reasons he's placed us here. And life at times can seem so drawn out. As quick as life goes, when you're going through something, it goes slowly. Some days seem really long and difficult. But you know what? God knows. God knows. It's that simple. Faith in those two words can give us peace to overwhelmingly conquer in any situation in life. And the one who knows is the same one that loves us perfectly. And so, again, on the board, there are no shortcuts. God gives man this thing called life in this thing called time, which no man can get around or rush through. It's impossible. Men try to, quote-unquote, rush through life all the time or they medicate themselves to forget about it. Why does that happen? Because you can't rush through it. You can do whatever you want to do in your fleshly power. So why did God design life this way? Step back and think big picture. Why did God design life this way? Where at times it can be so difficult and drawn out. It can seem that way. Why? What's the, what's the purpose? And again, on the board, no matter how difficult it may seem at times, it's an act of grace. It's because in, in the process of life, however slow or painful at times it is, it's in that process that God can bring forth supernatural change and eventually wonderful fruit in our lives that brings glory to his grace. So that's why there are no shortcuts. God gives man this thing called life in this thing called time, which no man can get around or rush through. And no matter how difficult it may seem at times, it's an act of his grace. For example, the Bible says God can take sinful wretches like us and make us into something truly good. That's a miracle. And, but you know what? If God did it too fast, we'd, we'd blow up. We'd quit. We'd destroy ourselves. We couldn't handle it. 
So God shows Satan and the fallen angels what he's doing with this weak, wretched little creature called man. And he's showing them, but he has to show them over time. Because he knows how weak we are. And so, on the board, by faith, we say, yes, Lord, I'm willing. That's our role in this. Humility, for lack of a better word. Okay, Lord, this is how life works. For some reason you have it this way, and this thing called time that we have to live out, there's no way around it. Okay. I surrender. Bring, me, bring yourself glory through me somehow. And then God, when we have this attitude in our heart, God performs the supernatural work in our lives, but over time. And make no mistake, when we get to heaven, we're going to be forever, forever grateful that he let us live out life. We're going to have no regrets whatsoever. We're going to be so grateful. So again, it's it's big picture. It requires stepping back, back and taking it with faith. That God knows. God knows what's going on. God knows exactly what He needs to do for you and I to bring Him the most glory. And it should also give us great hope that even Jesus Himself had to live out His life on earth as one of us. Why didn't Jesus come down from heaven as a man and go straight to the cross and get it done with? I mean, even that is living it out. That's the worst part to live out. But why did he have to live out a whole life as a man from childhood to adulthood to crucifixion? And he had to do it all by faith, by the way, as a man. Yeah, he was God. He is God. But as a man, he had to walk through life one day at a time by faith. There was no way around that. They were talking about no shortcuts. Even God didn't take a shortcut, even though he could have and probably should have, at least in our opinion. He's like, Mm-mm, I'm going to show you how it's done. There's a necessity to living this thing out. And there's a goodness in the end a divine goodness that that has eternal fruit to being willing to go through this. So turn again to Philippians 2.7. This should be very encouraging that even Jesus chose to live out life on earth through this thing called time that we sometimes don't want to be stuck in. Philippians 2, 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. Talk about living something out all the way to the end. He did that incredible, horrible thing for us. And you know what? He has no regrets in eternity right now. He is elated. He has the greatest joy ever because he saved all of us by what he decided to live out in humility.
And you know what? We can have a piece of that joy. Um, God can use our lives if we humbly live it out under his, under his mighty hand, under his guidance. Use our lives for eternal repercussions and eternal fruit. When we get to heaven, we're going to have zero regrets. We're going to have such great joy that we went through that thing and willingly went through that thing for him. It's just beyond words. I can only imagine, right? Maybe step back and go home tonight and try to imagine the eternal repercussions of a life lived for God. Maybe the Spirit will show you some things to give you some great encouragement. So, Jesus has no regrets in eternity because he was willing to live out his life as his heavenly Father saw fit. He wasn't willing to live out his life as he saw fit, even though he was perfect. He chose to do it as his heavenly Father saw fit, by faith. And like in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but your will be done. If this cup can pass from me, please take it from me. But if not, your will be done. He lived out life as his heavenly Father saw fit was best. He knew that God knows. And he accepted that. And he did the greatest thing that ever was done by a human being. Again, on the board, there are no shortcuts. Sanctification relies upon the mixture of the Word, the Spirit, and life itself in order to function. Are you willing to accept that? Are you willing to embrace that? Every day, fight the good fight of faith. I need the Word, I need the Spirit, and I'm going to live life today in this way that God designed. God has deemed that there is no substitute for experience. That's how God set it up. And even His Son was required to live as a human. And we should always be encouraged greatly by the following verse in Hebrews 4.15. Go to Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. There's a reason why God designed life the way He has. Let's consider a couple other passages that illustrate why God has us live out life and how He sanctifies us over time. Look at Hebrews 5, verse 14. Hebrews 5.14 But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. If you don't practice, if you don't on the board obey or embrace the principle on the board that I need the Word and the Spirit every day to live out this thing called life, if, you don't not, if you're not willing to practice with God's provisions, you're not going to be trained to discern good and evil. You're not going to bring God glory with your life as you were designed to do. But it takes practice. Guess what? That takes time. That takes repetition. 
Again, there's no way around the way God designed life, no matter how much we want to try to twist it or change it. And although it's painful at times, it's divinely good, especially in the end. And it's because of this that we have many, many opportunities throughout our lifetimes to bring glory to God. If there was no such thing as time, if there was, let's just say your life was, you know, not using the right language, but really short, okay? A day. You're here a day, and you're gone. Some of you are like, yeah, that'd be great. I know, I know. But think about, because of time, how many opportunities we have to bring glory to God by faith. 365 days a year. If you live 100 years, that's 36,500 days that you have a chance to bring glory to God, each separately in its own day. And then how many times within each day do you have a chance to bring glory to God? So without time, we wouldn't have this uh, grand opportunity because when we get to heaven again, we're going to have no regrets. We're going to be like, oh, thank God I lived, I lived in the Word and I humbled myself. Thank God I followed the Word and the Spirit and submitted you know, best I could. And God gave me the power to do all these things. Look at all these things I was able to do for Him. But once life's over, we can't go back and change our mind and repent. There's no more repentance once you get to heaven. There's no more chances. So think about how time, as drawn out as it is sometimes, is, is, is such an act of grace. Because heaven is forever and the rewards are forever also. Go to Hebrews 12.11 for another verse that shows us how God sanctifies us over time. Hebrews 12.11 All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Without time, that's not possible. These verses reveal the need to be sanctified slowly and gently over time. And maybe we should pause right now and thank God that there are no shortcuts, even though the flesh would like them on the board. We should now stop and thank God for this thing called time as it affords us his gentleness and a gradual learning that doesn't slam us into a state of shock or despair. He's so gentle with us and he's so patient with us. Remember what David said in Psalm 18? God's gentleness makes me great. Look at all the things David did for the Lord. Would he have done those without time? Without having all those years to even grow and live by faith and step out by faith and do things that a man doesn't have any business doing except for the power of God. Again, we should stop now and thank God for this thing called time because it affords us his gentleness and a gradual learning that doesn't slam us into a state of shock or despair. And then on Sunday, we talked about (laughs) no shortcuts in the sense that God actually perfected salvation for us by becoming a man himself. 
And I hate to say it, but this is something we take for granted because we've heard it so many times. Right? God became a man. Jesus went to the cross. But it's stupendous. It's stupefying. It's ridiculous what God did. And God could have taken shortcuts. If anyone could have taken shortcuts, it was him. But God chose to enter the center of it all. I'm going to enter the center of the battle, the worst place to be, right under Satan's attack, personal attack, for 33 years. He humbly entered into this thing called life. God humbly entered himself into this thing called life, earthly life, taking on the state of mortality in the flesh. But we're so used to it. We're too familiar with it. But it's ridiculous and mind-blowing. On the board, there are no shortcuts. God, in his grace and love, didn't ask us to do something he didn't do himself. It's just crazy. But how encouraging is that? How humbling is that? Let it, let it humble you. Let the love of Christ humble you. Because that's what motivated it all. And his life on earth that he lived out is the great illustration that there's joy in giving to others. There's joy in living for others. He had the joy of saving others through his actions and through unselfishly living out his life, his timeline. And he so desires that we see it and share in his joy. He's like, I want you to follow my example. This was worth it, if you could tell us right now. This was worth it. Follow my example. Go by faith. His heart is that we see the joy he experienced by the way he lived for others. And that's, after all, from the start of our message, what true love does. Another thing God's been showing me recently, which I kind of just mentioned, is the more we recognize God's amazing love, the more humble we become. The more we really believe His love, accept it, believe like our message title, you know, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? The more we personally believe that, the more humble we become, humbled. And then the other, the details of life start going away, like to the side. You, you, almost, you almost don't care anymore. You're in the middle of this thing where God is taking care of everything, and he, and he, and he holds you with a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A love that can't be broken. He holds you with that kind of love. So allow it to humble you and just live for him. There's freedom. And so we fully depend on him, the one who so definitely proved his undying love for us. That's how we share in his joy on the board. Jesus wanted his disciples to enjoy the supernatural joy that comes with dependence on him. Jesus wanted to share his joy with those he loved. But it only comes with dependence upon him. On the board, we've seen this a few times. 
John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in His love. See, again, He's not asking us to do something He hasn't done already. Jesus said, my life was perfectly happy and at perfect peace because I followed my Father's commands. And He knows. Like everything. So I'm going to trust Him. And I'm going to be at peace because of it. But there's no shortcuts. There's no way around that. As Pastor said on Sunday, do you sense the family that you've been adopted into? Is it personal to you? Do you sense the family that you've been adopted into by God through Christ? He desires for us to experience God's family. Experience it. Live it out. Live out this new life now in this type of relationship that he's given us, this type of bond, even in this church, with an eye on life, an eye on true life, an eye on the way to live life, the divine way, unselfishly, with love for others. God so greatly desires for us to abide in his love, to stay right here, Jesus might say. Stay right here in my love. I don't want you to go anywhere. Stay really close. Stay right here. Obey my, my commands. It's the safe and secure place that's going to give you true peace. On the board, God our Father wants us to enjoy the spirit of adoption that we received at salvation. He wants us to enjoy that so badly. Like a father would want for his son on earth. He wants us to enjoy the spirit of adoption. We're no longer orphans without a home or without a father. We belong to him once for all. Once for all, it's finished, it's done. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And if that's true, if no one can separate you from the love of Christ, live life now in, in the freedom that God designed you to live in. How many of us take this for granted on the board? And are we crazy? Yeah. Stupid might be a better word. To take this for granted. God wants us to enjoy the spirit of adoption that we received at salvation. When no longer orphans without a home or without a father, we belong to him once for all. Romans 8, 12 through 15 and Romans 8, 35 through 39. It's the security of this relationship in Him that God wants us to enjoy. Who can separate us from the love of God Almighty? The one with all power and the one who is love. Who can separate us from Him? Nobody. So you know what? Live life in that reality. Go to Romans 8.12. Romans 8.12. Again, it's the security of this relationship in Him that God wants us to enjoy. Romans 8, 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. As our hearts ache for those in this world, even for some in our own earthly families, we must embrace and enjoy our adoption by God. We must never let that go and enjoy His peace as a way of giving thanks to Him. What is more wonderful for a father to see his child being totally confident in his provisions? Walking around in total confidence and peace that his father's got his back and is taking care of him. Is there anything more joyful to a father? And so God says, enjoy this peace I purchased for you. And in that way, I'm happy. In that way, you're giving me thanks even. So the point is, and this is the point that came out on Sunday that we're going to probably close with. We can be sad at times, um, just with the condition of the world or for others in our families that are lost. It's okay to be sad at times, but we must never despair as those who have no hope in this world. We must never despair. That's not part of God's plan for us as his adopted ones. Why would we despair when we have all-powerful God on our side who has perfect love and knows everything? Why would we despair? That's not the right way to think. That's not the right perspective. So on the board, do not despair. Jesus understood firsthand what alienation from earthly families and communities was alike. He warned his disciples of such things for themselves also, as in Matthew 10, 35-37. Jesus totally understood this. He lived it. It sucked, for lack of a better word. I mean, I'm sorry, but you know what I mean. It really stinks when your own family member that you love does this to Christ. But you know what? Jesus lived that. He experienced it firsthand, the pain of it, and he didn't despair. He, ex- he expected it. And he also knew, you know, that God knows and that God can do anything because all things are possible with God. So we can be sad without despairing. There's a big difference between those two things. We saw in John 7, 5 that even Jesus' brothers were not believing in him. How's that? You're the Messiah. And they say, no, I'm not going to believe in you. We're not the Messiah. We're all sinners. And we get despairing when our brother doesn't, you know, believe what we're saying. In Matthew, um, I'm sorry, Mark 6, 4, we're not going to go there, but Jesus said a prophet is not without honor except one place, his hometown, with his own family that are familiar with him. So Jesus knew this and expected it, and still he did not despair, even though I'm sure he was sad about it at times. Despair is not in the language of his children, is kind of the message. We always have hope in him, even for others, because all things are possible with God. So we don't despair. Let's close with a couple passages. First go to Matthew 10.35. Matthew 10.35. Remember that 
Jesus even warned the disciples of, that this was going to happen to them. And, and by warning them, he's like, don't despair, you know, like expect this. This is going to happen. Don't be caught off guard by it, even though it is sad at times. Matthew 10.35 For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So in other words, don't have unrealistic expectations, which we've all probably had, you know, growing up in the faith. But Jesus is like, this is going to occur. And I want you to make sure that you choose me over them when that choice hits you in the face because you're not worthy of me otherwise. Speaking of keeping the right perspective and never despairing, go to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. We'll close with this passage, I think. 2 Corinthians 4, 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And here it is in verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Again, there's a great difference between being sad and despairing. It's okay at times to be sad. It's not okay to despair because we always have hope. We have the perfect hope. So again in verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may, may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. 
we also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So we don't lose heart, family. We don't lose heart. We walk daily with the new family we've been given in Christ that's held together by the love of Christ. And we live in the love that Jesus loved us with. We live out life. Let's live it out together. You know what I mean? Why are we isolating ourselves? Let's live it out together as a team, as a unit, as we were designed to function in the unity of the faith with the bond of love always between us. Because our new family, we have godly love. And it's supernatural. We're not perfect. We all know that. But who can separate us from the love of Christ? It's a fact. It's not a feeling again. It's a fact. It's a, it's a, it's a reality in our lives. He's given us His love and that's why we don't despair ever. Amen? We don't despair ever. Let's close on that note. Father, we thank you so much for your love that has totally sealed our salvation, our relationship with God Almighty. We're just so grateful, Father, that once you've done this thing, You've sealed us in your Holy Spirit that nothing can separate us from your love. And we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Father, we're so grateful for this reality, for this truth. And we ask that you allow it to set us free in our souls and to live life as you designed us to live in your love resting in your hands as we go out in the devil's world and face trials and tribulations and attacks we don't despair father and we thank you for your spirit and your word and your power within us we ask your blessing to be upon us all as we go it's in christ's precious name we pray by the power of your spirit amen